Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello, everybody. This is the Carpe Consensus podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network, and welcome to the show. Uh, My name is Ben Schiller. I'm the features editor here at Coindesk, and Danny Nelson is here. Hi, Danny. Hello, hello. And Cam Thompson is here. She's a Web3 reporter. Hi. How's it going? It's going fantastic. We've got a real bumper show for you today, and Danny's going to walk you through it. Absolutely. This week on Carpe Consensus, which is, of course, our chance to look at the biggest trends in crypto and how they're all coming together at the Consensus Festival in Austin. Please use my referral code. Um, Oh, yeah. Less than 100 days now. Get excited. Less than. Less than 100 days, more than 100 people. It's going to be a time. I hope there'll be more than 100 people. More than, maybe <laughs> many multiples more than 100. 200, 300, maybe even 500. I don't know. We haven't figured out who survived the bear market yet. But before we get there, we're going to go inside the desk on this week's show to talk about our sister company, Genesis, which uh, filed for bankruptcy last week. Isn't that fun for us, who is sort of financially not unrelated to them? We'll be hearing from Kathy Hackle, who is a metaverse guru for all things fashion. And we'll also be getting into Policy Week with the executive editor of Consensus, Mark Hochstein. All right, let's get to it. All right, we're going to get to our new segment, which is called Inside the Desk. And we're going to talk about some news that is quite close to home, although maybe not as close to home as some people might think. And that involves Genesis, which is part of the DCG conglomerate, of which Coindesk is also a part. Uh, Danny described Genesis earlier as a sister company to Coindesk. And I guess that's true in a kind of corporate businessy language sort of way. But it also implies more of a relationship between the two entities than actually exist. So we do have the same owner, but there's no collusion or in the words of uh, the FTX uh, trial lawyers commingling. So uh, just to be clear about that, Danny, so what is the latest news about Genesis? It sounds like they're in pretty uh, hot water at the moment. They are in hot water. As I discovered uh, late Thursday night, they filed for bankruptcy. Everyone in crypto sort of expected this to happen because Genesis, which lost so much money to Three Arrows Capital, 
and then a little bit more to FTX, and then a whole lot more from its own customers trying to get their money out, went bankrupt and filed in the Southern District of New York. I found this out at 11 p.m. on a Thursday. As I was getting ready for bed, I made the mistake that I've made so many times, which is to go on Twitter at all, but especially right before bed. I saw a headline, Genesis Files for Bankruptcy. Now, I have practiced, I have trained for this moment. I know where to go, where to look, what to find as soon as I see a headline like that. So I hopped on to the federal government's archaic system for searching for bankruptcy filings, pulled up Genesis, and got a story out in about four minutes. And that really was the start of a crazy Thursday night. The whole newsroom came on. It felt like within two hours, I think we had four different stories up covering so many different angles of this crypto lender going bankrupt. That's amazing, Danny. So who actually reported that on Twitter then? Oh, I mean, the headline that I initially saw was just from one of those bots that get RSS feeds of what's happening and then regurgitate it for the world. So it wasn't a news organization. My goal then was to get us to be the first one to publish a story because we can't get the headline out as quickly, but we can totally get a story out. And we, everyone knew that this was coming. We just didn't know when. We were ready to go as soon as we found out it was time to go. Okay. Can you just contextualize Genesis a little bit for our listeners? Because not everyone will be aware. I mean, uh, how big are they? How important were they? And how big a deal is it that they're going down like this? Yeah. So Genesis has been one of the key crypto lending entities throughout this previous bull run. It basically takes people's money in and loans them out to hedge funds and traders in order to generate a yield on people's crypto deposits that you could then pay back. And these yields can go into the tens and twenties of percents when things are good, and they can shrink down into nothingness when things aren't so good. And things haven't been so good, especially for customers of Gemini's Earn program. This is the Gemini exchange by the Winklebot brothers. I'm sorry, the Winklevoss (laughs) brothers. I'm sorry, the Winklebot brothers. And they, these retail depositors just wanted 8% on their yield, which is a tough number to hit in crypto uh, these days. They gave their money to Gemini. Gemini gave their money to Genesis. Genesis gave their money to, I don't know. And then, I don't know, forgot to give the money back to Genesis, who then couldn't give it back to Gemini, who then couldn't give it back to the customers. So now you have hundreds of thousands of angry people who want almost a billion dollars back from Gemini. And Gemini can't get it from Genesis. And Genesis has been forced to file for bankruptcy just in order to avoid all these lawsuits. Because one function of bankruptcy proceedings is it protects you, at least while you're going through bankruptcy, from legal action. The thought being, well, while you're in this protective wrapper, you can restructure and fix up your books and get people's money back. Do you see that happening, though? Fixing up the books? Oh, I mean, I, I have no idea. But I can say that we're getting to be something of bankruptcy experts here in the Coindesk newsroom because so many <laughs> companies have gone kaput. It does feel like Genesis had the benefit of time here. They knew, or they, they knew that they were in a bad situation and they had a lot of time to prepare for this moment. Some news outlets have characterized this bankruptcy as a prepackaged bankruptcy, which basically means that the bankrupt company is going into this with a clear plan to get out of it and might even do so by May. Now, that's a big change from some of the other bankruptcies we're seeing, Voyager, Celsius, all these have been going on for months and will continue to. So Genesis seems to think that it has a pretty clear roadmap to getting back on track. 
Okay, thanks, guys. That was really interesting, Danny. And uh, we'll stay on this very important story and see if Genesis really does emerge from uh, bankruptcy in a better state. All right, everyone. So for today's speaker spotlight, I am super, super excited to introduce Kathy Hackle, Chief Metaverse Officer and founder of Journey. She's also a consensus speaker, so make sure to catch her in Austin, April 26th to 29th. It's going to be a great time. Kathy, thanks so much for being here. Super excited to talk to you today. Me too. Excited to be here. Awesome. All right. So I want to first get started by talking a little bit about your book that you just published last week. Congratulations. Really exciting. So this book, Into the Metaverse, explores the metaverse as an industry and how it's going to play a role in our lives with technology, business, society. So what are some of the key takeaways you can share or highlight you know, from your book? Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Um, the book just launched uh, a few days ago. Uh, it actually happened coincidentally on January 17th when I happened to be in Davos uh, speaking at the World Economic Forum as part of the official program. So that was a really exciting moment to launch the book. It was really interesting because the premise of the book, there's, there's many books out there about the metaverse right now, right? And many of them are trying to define it or trying to understand the technical and the enabling technologies. And I, I love those books. I've written one of them as well in the past. This book is really focused on the business opportunities, right? So this book is for whoever it is their problem to deal with metaverse, Web3, gaming, anything like that within an organization, a startup. So it's really focused on those professionals that are either going to be, you know, chief metaverse officers, if, they, if a company tends to have that term, or heads of Web3 and metaverse. So it's more like a, it's a business guide or a framework for those people. I want you to speak a little bit about your experience at Davos. I know I also ran into you at CES. You did a fantastic panel talking about the metaverse and some of these business opportunities. So at these two conferences, sort of back to back, how did you see some of those conversations emerging about the metaverse being a business opportunity, talking about some of those strategies that are in play or that you're expecting to see in the next coming months? Right. Definitely what I'm seeing is that there is a bit of skepticism right now. Like there was this hype moment that we went through, right? When Meta changed their name, you know, when Facebook changed their name to Meta, and there was this hype cycle, right, that we, li we lived through. But for a lot of us in the industry, we understand this is the longer term. This is five, 10 years from now. It's not, it's not today, right? It's something that we're building towards. So definitely a little bit more skepticism, I think some more negativity. But that being said, I mean, from, let's say, the, key, the opening keynote at CES, where they talked about the metaverse being something that is not going away right, to being at Davos and being part of the, I'm part of the Metaverse Initiative and, you know, launching two different reports, one on the consumer metaverse, one on interoperability, being there, being part of the program. Hearing the conversations, right, I think that there's so many, the word is polluted in a sense, but if we truly believe it is the successor state of today's mobile internet, then it is truly too big to ignore, right? So, so yeah, I think that there's confusion around the term. Some people really focus on VR. Some people are really focused on, you know, the crypto side of it, and they immediately think FTX, right? And it's like, well, no, it's, it, this is a lot bigger. So definitely a lot of conversation. What I will tell you, what was really, I think, for me, really interesting to watch was that a lot of us that are in this space, we live in a bubble, right? We, we always talk to the same people. We don't know what we're talking about, right? If I go to all these events, like, but being at, being in Davos, being surrounded by all these business leaders, some of them that truly don't understand what this is or are pretty skeptical is starting to hear more of an interest of like, well, tell me what this really means for my business beyond a marketing activation. 
Yeah, so I'm interested in learning more about your perspective on this fight between the decentralized metaverse and the metaverse that is pushing toward really commercial viability at this point. We see all the money coming from meta going into the metaverse. It's hard to imagine that whatever comes out of meta won't be critical to the world's understanding of what the metaverse is. So, you know, here in our bubble, we might think that the decentralized metaverse makes sense. But how does the decentralized metaverse win out when all the real capital is pouring into the meta version of it? Here's what I'm seeing, Nanny, is that the reality is we are going to need those big corporations to be a part of that future, right? Is the future all fully only open and decentralized? I think it probably won't all be open and decentralized. A lot of it will be, right? Because the ad revenue models that made the tech giants of, of Web2 are, are starting to fail, obviously, right? So new models will come in and take over that. And part of that is some level of being decentralized, right? And owning your data and owning your, your assets and, you know, potentially interoperability. But I think we cannot be naive and think that it's only fully, it's only going to be open and decentralized. And this is why I say that, because I, I live in D.C. I happen to live in Washington, D.C. because my family's here. And I talk to a lot of people in the defense department. I talk to a lot of people in, you know, in government. And, and there are certain things that, that might not be open and decentralized, right? Even if they use zero knowledge proofs or whatever, like some things might not be open and decentralized. So the idea and the concept that the future is only fully open and decentralized worries me because I think we need to be realistic, right? That being said, I do agree with you. I think that whatever these big corporations do bring to the world will impact the rest, right? So I, I'm hopeful that maybe because the ad revenue models that made Web2 giants what they became are not working, that they're starting to truly seriously look at potential new models and ways of being, right? So, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I think at this stage in the game, like we all have to play nice with each other. At least that's my feeling from Davos is that you had on the promenade, you had Meta, but across the street, you had Polygon and across the street, you had Hedera and across the street, you had Qualcomm and across the street, you had all these different parts of what this ecosystem is. Yeah. But isn't it, sorry, sorry, but isn't it our job as people, as journalists and, and commentators and, you know, people like yourself to kind of have a position on this? And if we mm -hmm. believe fundamentally that Web2 was, you know, very useful for the world, but somewhat of a bastardization of the Internet's original principles and that Web3 is supposed to be a return to those principles, shouldn't we be arguing in favor of an open metaverse rather than being passive in the face of this corporate takeover of it? No, no, I agree with you. I, the work I do is towards an open and decentralized metaverse, but we cannot be naive. I've met so many people that are only open. It can only be open and decentralized, right? And I'm like, have you talked to people in defense? Have you talked to people in healthcare? Like, does everything have to be open and decentralized? But yeah, I mean, I think we should build towards an open and decentralized system that allows us to own our data again. I'm 100% on board with that. But I think we cannot be naive, right? And think that it's only going to be one way. I mean, I think another question that I have too, kind of pivoting away a little bit. So a lot of brands have had activations in the metaverse. A lot of Web2 brands have kind of stepped in, done something in Decentraland, something in the sandbox, mm -hmm. really, you know, tried to engage with a new audience. But, you know, there hasn't been a lot that have really stuck or a lot of really valuable brand activations. So I guess what needs to happen for some of these brands to be able to step in the space and actually do like a successful metaverse experience? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really, a lot of these have been marketing driven, right? And I do talk to a lot of marketers, obviously, but what's the marketing KPI, right? It's like the engagement at that moment, the PR spin, like all those sorts of things. That's what they're measuring their success in. 
So sometimes it's not even like how many people like are in Decentraland, which is a big discussion that everyone's having, right? But it's more like, oh, we claim to be the first ones to do X in the metaverse. You know, from the decentralized side, yeah, I mean, what, what is successful in that space? I mean, I think Metaverse Fashion Week was pretty impressive. I think Metaverse Fashion Week this year is going to be even more impressive uh, with the things that they're doing with spatial, et cetera, and adding more platforms. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to, you know, as, as crazy as it sounds, the downturn that we're in actually is going to breed projects that are more thought out, that are not, you know, running towards that PR, be the first to do X. I think we're going to start to see brands actually think about Web3 and what that means for them in a longer term view. And that's what gets me excited. You know, when I think about consensus and the kinds of conversations that I'm going to have with folks there, I think they're going to be very different than last year. Last year when I was there, you know, I had a lot of brands approach me, say, hey, we want to be the first ones to do X in the metaverse. I'm hoping to get off that stage and have conversations as to like conversations like, okay, we did X, we were the first to do X. How do we create, how does this play long-term? How do we think about the next 18 months? How do we start to think about Web3 community building, moving away from Web2? So my hope is that, you know, I'm going to have more quote unquote mature conversations that are not so much around the hype. That's my hope, at least. Right. I think especially June 2022 was really coming out of that hype and a lot of people doing these one-off, maybe they were seemingly PR stunts, but kind of dropping into the metaverse and then going. I think there are a lot of things like that. Personally, I'm really excited to see how Metaverse Fashion Week happens mm -hmm. this year, um, how it's going to be different, how some of these brands might work towards longevity. Ben and Danny, do you guys have any memorable Metaverse activations you've seen over the past year or, you know, things you want to highlight? Yeah, I remember the, oh my goodness, I think it was uh, Snapple. They opened yes. a, a bodega <laughs> in the Metaverse and you go into the bodega <laughs> yeah. and you search for little treasure hunt pieces and then you end up getting, I think, a coupon. But what was really annoying to me was that when I won this coupon after doing this this kind of janky treasure hunt, it I think it only offered me the ability to get a cash redemption, which really kind of irked me. It was like, well, we're going to have this metaverse thing to cater to all, I don't know, 10 to 20 people who would buy Snapple after coming to it in a blockchain bodega but we're only going to give them dollars. I was like, well, if you're going to do a crypto thing, then give me USDC or make it more crypto native. So it just felt really strange to me that they did this half measure and I won the game and I couldn't even get USDC for my Snapple. Is that too much to ask? I don't know. <laughs> it's not too much to ask, Danny. Ben, did you have any? Well, I was kind of curious about some of these governments, I think it was the Bahamas even, uh, which is slightly tainted, I guess now, uh, with setting up an embassy in the metaverse that seemed like an interesting kind of diplomatic outreach. Ben, I had a lot of conversations in Davos, actually, with a lot of governments around, like, what does this mean for us? Like, I mean, Seoul during Davos announced, like, their metaverse virtual space, where they're going to offer potential services. It's really interesting to see cities right? Trying to think about like, what does this mean for them beyond, you know, setting up an office in the central land, like really thinking broader. That to me was, these are very interesting conversations. I'll tell you, this is a fun, fun, not fun, but interesting conversation that I had with the secret service, right? Once again, I live in DC. I do a lot of work in fashion, but I just happen to live here. So I have conversations with folks in, you know, in all sorts of spaces in the government. Are you a spy, Kathy? 
I'm a spy. <laughs> no, far from it. Uh, far from it. But I do love reading spy novels. You actually, if you have to tell us you are, if you are a spy. Just, you know, That's like true. But the Secret Service, you know, I was doing a talk for them on the metaverse and they asked me, so do you think in the future we're going to have to safeguard the president's avatar? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. Whoever's the president in 30 years, in 40 years, right now is going to leave like a trail. It's not even like social media data. It's like avatar data. Like who they were, what they were, their preferences, what, you know, they start to do more volumetric stuff. There's going to be a trail of data about what they look like, what their preferences are, right? Especially if they're in crypto, like, you know, (laughs) the wallet, all the information, you know, all the projects they they were involved in or everything that they're buying. And they said, absolutely. But I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch that. And I'm like, absolutely. You're going to have to safeguard. And this is, this is how this came to be. I did a project with the chief futurist at the Air Force, a good friend of mine who's who's no longer there. He's at Defense University now. And we did a volumetric scan of him, like a hologram of him. And we had to safeguard that. We had to make sure that it was safeguarded, that it wasn't going to be transported out of the country. Like there are all these things that we have to think about when creating a virtual twin of someone, right, that is in government, because that could be used for, for nefarious purposes. So yeah, you know, I think that there's really interesting things there when it comes to diplomacy, services, and even safeguarding the future of, of the president and who they are. Completely. And even if it's not with the president, you know, security in the metaverse is a big trend that I've seen in conversations and a lot of people talking about that. So I want to ask you, what are some trends you're expecting to see in the next coming months, you know, in this year? And I'll go around and ask everyone after too. Yeah. So Cam, you know me, like I'm very much involved in the fashion space, a bigger push between, you know, physical and digital and integrating that. I'm looking forward to not fashion week in February, but fashion week in September fashion month, I think you're going to have so many more brands and so many more things happening that are bigger and better and more convergence between physical and digital. But yeah, I think connected fashion is going to continue to be something people are going to push and they're going to push the limits too. So I always look at the fashion industry as a first mover in this space and how they're adopting things. That's one. And then obviously everyone's talking about generative AI, like no matter where you go, whether it's CS, whether it's Davos, wherever it is, how does generative AI play into this whole thing, right? And for me, AI is part of the future state of the metaverse. I heard this term recently, the generative metaverse, right? How do we start to integrate generative AI into the metaverse? Having spent time at Magic Leap, you know, one of the North Stars when I was there was called human-centered AI. We had a virtual human called Micah. And I'm thinking really through the human aspect of this generative AI moment that we're living through and the humans behind this, right? Not so much. I love the technology. ChatGPT is amazing. It's giving me great responses to the prompts I give it. But thinking about not so much that it's going to replace us, but our jobs are going to change and we're going to have to work really well with it, right? So the humans that are going to replace those jobs right now are the humans that can work well with AI, right? So looking at that, like, is it, it's going to be like creative AI director. Like, is that a role in the future? Someone that knows really well how to prompt this, how to work with these technologies, right? Um, So I'm excited about that. I'm nervous about the misinformation it's going to bring into the world as well. I don't know. I'm, I'm worried about some parts of it, but Definitely generative AI is going to continue to be a moment. I think maybe in, you know, a couple of years time, we're going to think back to this moment and be like, wow, that really was a watershed moment. So any predictions, Ben, Danny? Well, I'm, I'm a sports fan, so I'm predicting, uh, you know, being able to watch sports together with live fans in the metaverse makes sense. I mean, I'm a Liverpool football club guy. So uh, the idea of being able to kind of sit in Anfield, the north of England, with actual people in some way is quite appealing. So I could see that definitely taking off. 
that would save a lot of money. Like I've been going to the Eagles football playoff games and my goodness, they are expensive to be there at, at the yeah. field. Uh, I'm going to wait until you can do metaverse tailgating though, until you can really get that immersive <laughs> experience. Um, I'm just not here for it. You can put a device and smell the barbecue. So <laughs> we, the screen box. That to, yes. That's yeah. The screen box. Yes. Oh my yeah. goodness. <laughs> the crazy fans would love that. Awesome. All right. I think, I think that's it. We'll wrap it up there. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for joining us today. It was really great to hear your perspective. Looking forward to having more of these conversations, especially at Consensus in April. So make sure to catch Kathy there. Make sure you get your tickets, everyone. It's going to be great. Super excited. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to being at Consensus. And uh, I'll be doing a book signing like I did last year. So hope to meet some of you, some of the listeners there. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. All right. So this week we have another very special guest. Today we are joined by Mark Hochstein, executive editor of Consensus. And we're going to be talking about Policy Week, which is a theme week that we are currently having at Coindesk this ongoing week. So Mark, could you talk a little bit about what Policy Week is and what kind of stories we've been putting out? Yeah, absolutely, Cam. So Consensus Magazine, which is sort of the part of Coindesk where we do the deep dives, the long form articles once a month, we will do a special package on a particular topic. And topic A right now is is regulation. In the wake of the collapse of FTX and the overall crypto meltdown, uh, regulators in the US and elsewhere who have had their eye on the crypto space for a very long time are gearing up to uh, really tighten the screws. And it's very likely that we will get new legislation in the US, new rules globally as well. You know, in particular, Jesse Hamilton from our regulatory team did a really interesting deep dive on how Congress in the US is finally, for better or for worse, really putting a focus on the digital asset sector in the way that they, they haven't in a long time. And I think FTX really was the catalyst. I mean, it was such a spectacular blow up. You know, it's interesting because the founder of FTX, the infamous Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, as many listeners know, was a prolific donor of money to politicians, uh, particularly on the Democratic side. But FTX, in general, their whole executive suite was very generous with the funding when it came to politicians. Interestingly enough, our regulatory team found that uh, one in three members of Congress has received donations or contributions uh, from someone at FTX. So you have that on the, on the one hand. But on the other hand, FTX itself is now an infamous disaster. And I think particularly the lawmakers who are not particularly keen on crypto are out for blood. So Mark, just tell us about Crypto Policy Forum a little more. What do you think the live issues are that are going to be up for debate uh, during consensus? What sort of topics are you going to be considering there? Yeah, absolutely, Ben. And one of our stages at Consensus will be the Crypto Policy Forum, where we will be really drilling into these very same topics that, that we've been talking about in Policy Week. So, you know, what I'm 
particularly excited about is that there's this kind of elephant in the room that's always been there in crypto, and that's the whole issue of privacy. And we, we're really seeing this come to a head, uh, I think, in the last year or so. I mean, when you saw the blacklisting of the Tornado Cash protocol on Ethereum in the U.S. by the U.S. Uh, sanctions agency, and then in the Netherlands, they even arrested a software development simply for, for writing code. Uh, you also saw an attempt by lawmakers in the EU to uh, really severely restrict user-controlled wallets and privacy coins. And it really underscores that law enforcement, financial regulators, tax authorities, they all want to make crypto legible. They all want to make even the smallest crypto transactions legible. And this is very, very hard to reconcile or to balance with kind of one of the, the central tenets of crypto and one of the reasons why Bitcoin and the cypherpunk movement that preceded it first, first got started, which is privacy. So the question is, where is the path to equilibrium? Fantastic. Sounds very interesting and important. So just on privacy, I mean, it seems like this new raft of legislation or potential legislation going through Congress at the moment would definitely be injurious to privacy. It seems like, you know, the dream of privacy is dying with FTX. And question is for you, I mean, is it crypto if there's no privacy? Well, to be fair, Ben, you could argue that there is no privacy anyway, as it stands in a sense, in that um, at least on you know, the major blockchain networks, everything's out in the open, transactions are traceable. Uh, of course, we can hide behind these pseudonymous strings of letters and numbers uh, that are our addresses, but there is a whole cottage industry of firms like Chainalysis and Elliptic that specialize in kind of following the trail of crumbs and doing these sort of clustering analysis and figuring out even if a, a user is keeping coins in different wallets, they can sort of figure out, you know, which wallets are controlled by the same entities. And on top of that, if you want to trade in and out of crypto for fiat, most exchanges these days, pretty much any regulated exchange is going to ask you for quite a bit of personal information that they're going to hold on to. So right. I'd say the privacy in, as it stands in crypto is, is, is far from perfect. Uh, the problem is that this is not enough from the point of view of at least certain members of the law enforcement community, of certain regulators, and certainly the politicians who are trying to get some mileage out of this disaster that befell the industry with FTX and with the crypto crash. So right. it's a complicated issue, but the privacy in most cases is far from perfect as it stands. And there are definitely political forces now that want to make it even worse from the user's perspective. Right. So just talk a bit more about the uh, Crypto Policy Forum and what it's trying to do. I mean, it isn't just a talking shop. You don't want just people coming in and giving their view on things. You want to arrive at some kind of consensus, there we use the phrase, and you're going to be producing a report out of it. I mean, there's, there's, there's a kind of a teleological kind of goal here, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So at Consensus uh, 2023, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I mean, we will have all the usual on-stage content that attendees are used, to, are used to seeing, but we're going to have some additional conversations offstage. We will be having some very intimate discussions. Intimate discussions, huh? Yes, yes. Uh, they will be conversations under uh, Chatham House rules. For those who aren't familiar, listeners who aren't familiar, Chatham House rules is uh, basically a set of rules whereby people who are in, in a meeting agree that they can repeat the ideas outside the room, but they cannot repeat them with attribution unless the speaker agrees to it. 
Um, and the reason we we're doing this, again, this is, I'm not talking about what's going on on stage. I'm talking about what's going on off stage is that we want to create kind of a safe space for people to really say what they think and not talk past each other, not default to talking to the sort of standard canned talking points. So we'll have these, uh, we're calling them the convenings, but we will have a handful of convenings on, on a number of these sort of really thorny challenges. But we will be listening in the room. And uh, as you mentioned, after the event, probably a couple of weeks after the event, we're going to come out with what we call the consensus at consensus report. And that's going to be a paper that is kind of synthesizing the takeaways from these conversations. We really want to help the industry or the, the whole crypto community collaboratively move this space forward in a constructive way. The report will be an attempt to do that. So Mark, with our policy week coverage and with your own just analysis of the industry, are you seeing that the punishment, if you will, matches the crime, which is to say after this implosion of FTX, are regulators moving to regulate the parts of crypto that actually led to this implosion? Or are they using it as a, a moment to attack everything? I would, I would say both. <laughs> They're definitely attacking everything. I, I mean, I think that the Elizabeth Warren bill you know, is, is sort of an egregious example of overreach. You know, there have been some other suggestions that are a little bit more reasonable and I think are a little bit more relevant to what happened with FTX. Uh, you know, I, th I think an interesting example recently is, you know, there's been talk about, you know, trying to separate the different functions of an exchange. I mean, in the, you know, in the mainstream financial markets and Gary Gensler, say what you will about him, He's right to point this out. In, in the mainstream financial markets, custody and trading, custody and exchange, these are sort of very separate functions, often handled by very you know, separate entities, separate firms. And just because of the kind of the way that crypto was born and grew up, we have this paradigm of, oh, you deposit funds within an exchange, um, which is kind of not how it works with the New York Stock Exchange. So one of the more relevant suggestions has been to try to create separate legal entities, at least, even if they're on, perhaps if they're under the same corporate roof, but you want to avoid commingling of funds. I mean, that appears to have been a major issue with FTX, right? Is that he was, not only does it appear that Sam Bankman-Fried may have been robbing Peter to pay Paul, as they say, um, the Peter pocket and the Paul pocket might have been just been one big pot. So- He was the commingler in chief. Yeah, ex yes, exactly. So you want to, you know, you want to avoid that, and a drastic move would be to have some kind of a Glass-Steagall Act, you know, from the 1930s type of thing where you forbid these different functions to even be in, uh, under the same roof. But, you know, perhaps a, a more moderate step would be to say, okay, you could have them under the same roof, but they should at least be like, you know, different legal entities. So in the, in the case of a, an insolvency, in the case of a bankruptcy, you know, these things are more easily pulled apart. When you were talking earlier about how some people in Congress have a major lack of understanding about cryptocurrency and are equating a lot of what is going on in crypto to FTX and financial fraud rather than a lot of these decentralized technologies, what do you think needs to happen or do you expect will happen or hopeful that it might occur to kind of debunk some of these myths and try to get a little more understanding among people in power about the difference between you know, having centralized financial fraud versus decentralized technologies? That's a really important question, Cam. I have often said, I've said this of Bitcoin, and I think it applies to you know, the best of the crypto space, is that this technology is like a beautiful horse. Everyone outside of crypto 
sometimes even the people in crypto, they fail to see the horse because all they can see are the flies buzzing around its behind. And I think if the industry is smart, they will find an articulate and understandable and clear and intelligible way to show the public and show the policymakers. I think there is an important job for the industry to differentiate between the crypto industry and the crypto technology. And I think the crypto industry definitely lost its way. The crypto community or elements of the crypto community arguably lost their way. But, you know, crypto technology, you know, the innovation continues, the development continues. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it has a powerful value proposition. Just it's not one that is politically easy to sell to uh, all the various constituencies. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, that was terrific. That was Mark Hogstein, executive editor at Coindesk and a true gent and one of the best journalists in our space. Thank you very much, Mark. Bye. Coindesk presents Crypto Crooks, Season 1, BitConnect. $2.4 billion, thousands of victims, mysterious deaths, untold misery worldwide. Once you start digging, you never know where it might lead. Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.